stick one out. Oh, okay. Our lesson this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're reading verses 10 to 20. And we are talking about the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For a struggle is not against for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms therefore put on the full armor of god so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Del. So today is part two of our sermon of a couple weeks ago on the deliver us from evil part of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I mentioned then that Ephesians, God's great work is to reconcile people in Christ. Reconcile uh, estranged sinners to himself, reconciling different even hostile people to each other. So God in Christ creates the church, who is God's family. And each Christian, Jew or Gentile, old or young, male or female, rich or poor, has God for a father. And therefore, each one of us, without exception, calls every other Christian, without exception, brother or sister. It's an incredible vision, God's own people. And according to Ephesians, it is not only possible because of what Christ has done, dying on the cross for sins that brought separation, but Jesus is actually the location, the center, the one in whom this great work of God happens. 
Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body. There is a real organic and life-giving connection. We're also in, therefore, sharing. So this formation of God's people, united in Christ, and therefore sharing Christ's unique position as a son of God, has been God's eternal purpose right from the get-go, before the creation of the world. More than that, it is the means by which God will glorify himself in eternity to all the spiritual realm. So through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Have we any idea that this is our place? This is a reality that God reveals to us in the book of Ephesians. And if this is God's great agenda, then it follows that Satan's great agenda is to try to derail it, to separate what God has joined together. And Satan's attacks are primarily for the purpose of disunity. And it is precisely for this reason that we are called to put on God's armor, shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, and so on, to stand against the devil, to make every, uh, every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So our unity is worth going to battle for. So we need God's armor. That's what Ephesians 6 is about. But Paul does not just talk about armor here. We're not called to merely bear up under Satan's blows. We're called to strike some blows ourselves, not just to withstand, but to resist, to push back. So we have not only armor, we have weapons. And Paul identifies two, scripture and prayer. And take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So that's where we'll devote our attention today. Christians have always known the importance of scripture and prayer in the Christian life. We sing as kids, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. We have recognized that without prayer, our relationship with God weakens. We know that the Bible is God's word, the authority on which you base our life and practice, and the food with which we nourish our spiritual life. That's not new information to us. But how many of us have understood prayer and scripture in the context of war, which Paul highlights here? How many of, how many of us consider the scripture and prayer as weapons with power? How many of us in our own approach to prayer and scripture Recognize that these practices are not just about my own spiritual development, but about the survival of the church. Because that's what, in, that's what is in view here in Paul, in Ephesians 6. The disciplines of prayer are not just spiritual disciplines for personal spiritual training, Consider the difference between two people who spend extraordinary time becoming proficient with the use of a rifle. One of them is an Olympic athlete hoping to be good enough someday to win the gold medal 
hoping that people all around the world will say, wow, what an excellent marksman. The other person is a soldier in an army who knows that if she falters with her weapon, she or someone in her unit may die and the enemy advance. We often think of prayer and scripture like the first person, that it advances us to the podium spiritually, that skill in these exercises is an end in itself. Paul suggests that it's more like the second person, that scripture and prayer are the, uh, the church's essential weaponry in the spiritual battle. And in the cut and thrust of hand-to-hand combat with a smell of dust and sweat and hearing the, the hiss and snarl of our spiritual enemy, which we had better know how to fight. If Satan and his demons are armed and dangerous, the church had better be more so. You know what this means, of course. It means that if we ever feel like our unity is threatened or beginning to weaken, then we address it not by programming or events or functions, but by relying on the scripture and prayer. Relying on the revealed word of God to the church and our communion with God together in prayer in the name of Christ. And notice too, that these are spiritual weapons. It is a sword of the spirit. We are called to pray in the spirit. The sword of the Spirit and pray in the Spirit. We have not only to put on the armor of God, but also to take up the weapons of God. Since our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil, our weapons need to be spiritual weapons. Weapons that have spiritual power. Weapons whose use is felt in the spiritual world, which is the world, in fact, in which we live. So let's consider these weapons for a moment. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And understanding that there is a fierce, sustained attack of the devil on the unity of the church. What if you found out that God himself had devised a weapon for your use. Wouldn't it be silly to find, try to find a better weapon? Silly even to consider it. God has fashioned a sword perfectly suited to pierce and wound the enemy. The sword of the Holy Spirit is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit. The Spirit inspired it, wrote it, as it were. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And as a sword of the Spirit, it is appropriate that, that we wield it to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And what a sword... The word of God is living. It's active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Remember Peter's, uh, Peter's teaching on uh, Pentecost concerning um, the word of God, concerning the divine sonship of Christ, the resurrection and the saving power of Christ? What was the response of the crowd? They weren't persuaded. They weren't convinced. They weren't moved. What does the Bible say? They were cut to the heart. The word of God is living and active. There is a power in the word of God unlike anything that you can imagine. And just as it has the cutting power to bring conviction and repentance, so it has the power to stab and inflict wounds on the enemy. Mortal blows. It not only has divine authority, it has the divine power to exercise its authority. Where does that power lie? It lies in the fact that God's word is truth. God's word is truth. It's not true, but it's truth. Jesus prayed for his followers in John 17 in the context of seeking their protection from the evil one. Jesus prayed, sanctify them, set them apart. In the truth, your word is truth. God's word is truth, e eternal truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That it was, that's what makes it such an effective weapon for what is Satan's primary weapon? It's deceit. He is a liar. Jesus said of him that he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Think of it. What lies at the heart of all disunity in the church? Deceit. All disunity, all discord, all estrangement, all disunity that has ever happened in any church of Jesus Christ anywhere, all of it has come about because someone has believed something that was not true. No exceptions. At the heart of all discord in the church, either between individuals or corporately, lies a lie. Whether the disunity is on the scale of the violence between Catholics and Protestants and even within Protestantism during and after the Reformation, burning at the stake and so on. Or whether it's just the relational disunity between Christians or group within the church. The lie that is believed is always some variation of the untruth that I have the right to think and act as I do or as we do. For example, when we believe the falsehood that I have the right to hold on to my anger, I have the right to feel offended, I have the right to have my own way, I have the right to speak or think about someone unkindly, that when I share my concerns, it's not gossip, it's sharing prayer requests. That it's okay for me not to forgive until I'm ready. That even though the Bible explicitly says that if someone has sinned against me, I need to go to that person. Or if I know that someone thinks I have sinned against them, 
I need to go and make it right. Nevertheless, I don't need to initiate the conversation. That's a lie. I don't need to initiate the conversation with that person. It's okay to just avoid them or hold on to my own sense of being treated badly. I challenge you to think of even one, one example of relational disunity between Christians which, was, which does not find its root in someone believing something that is not true. Even one. The word of God is the word of truth. The devil and, his, devil and his forces scheme and attack the unity of the church of Jesus Christ, and his primary weapon is the lie. To Eve, he said, did God say this? Well, I say, not this. And he believed the lie, and the relationship with God was broken. Lies bring separation. So, yes, deliver us from evil. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, is our weapon. The word is truth, and the spirit is the spirit of truth. Now, here's the question, though. How do we wield this sword? It's easy for me to say the Bible is a weapon in the spiritual battle. That's abstract. How do we actually become proficient in the use of this weapon? First, it, it presupposes familiar, familiarity with the sword, with the scripture. In the heat of battle is the wrong time to figure out how to use a weapon. That knowledge has to be there when you need it. And at the risk of reducing things to a to-do, which is never about the to-do, but we sometimes need the to-do, the truth is that there is no substitute for reading and rereading and learning the scripture. That is true in our own spiritual health and growth. If you're spiritually dry or apathetic and you are not in the scripture, that is the very first thing you need to do. Go back to reading the scripture. That does not mean that reading the Bible is to have a guaranteed immediate increase in spiritual health and vitality. But I do know that it does not happen without the scripture. No one who does not read the scripture grows in spiritual life. No one who does not read the scripture grows in their spiritual life. And sometimes people think, um, I need to be inspired before I read the scripture. If I read it now, it'd just be dry. But that's like saying, I, it's like saying, I feel so weak, but even though I haven't eaten for seven days, I'll wait till I'm a little stronger before taking some food. For our own spiritual health, a steady diet of God's word is essential. And how much more so than if we were to defend the unity of the church? with the word of God. 
Now, not every time I read the Bible does God speak to me directly, or is there some inspiration that I get? Not at all. In fact, by certain standards, most would be surprised that there is very little life in my reading. But having read through the Bible repeatedly, there is no question in my own mind and heart and spirit that the reading of the Bible more than any other single factor has formed my character, has formed my faith. My familiarity with the Bible has informed my values, my decisions, my leadership, my worldview, my parenting. And familiarity only comes by regular reading or listening or studying with others. There is no other way. Are you in the scriptures? But being familiar with it, how do we use it? Because it's not just familiarity with the scriptures, nor the simple practice of reading it that has value. Again, think of two people become proficient with the use of the rifle, one for competition, one for battle. How do we use the scripture in battle? By living it in the moment. A good swordsman is not one who has memorized Ephesians. A good swordsman is someone who chooses for, to forgive someone because she herself has been forgiven in Christ. I'm not a good swordsman because I've read through the Bible. I'm a good swordsman if my life is shaped by the knowledge that I'm a child of God, saved by grace, and am therefore no better than anyone else. I'm a good swordsman if I love my wife as Christ loved the church. If I speak the truth in love. That's how I live according to the truth. And that's how we wield the sword of the Spirit. When Satan stabbed us with the knowledge that we've been wronged, we parry with God's word. Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Take the beam out of your own eye before trying to help your brother take the speck out of his. If a brother sins against you, don't go tell someone else about it, but go show him his fault. When Satan tells you that you have a right to be angry, in your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. When you find yourself thinking that you are unable to forgive or just not ready to forgive, remember that that is a lie. And God's word says, forgive as you've been forgiven. And I can do all things through him who gives me strength. As long as unforgiveness exists, unity does not. When you find yourself judging or thinking critically about something, recall that the word of God says, judge not lest you be judged. Consider others better than yourselves. We wield the sword of the spirit by living it consciously and specifically. And we only do that as we know what it says. 
We wield the Spirit by living it consciously, specifically. And we only do that as we are familiar with it, as we know what it says. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, however, is not the only weapon given, given to us. Its counterpart is prayer. And these two have always been linked. Prayer and Scripture go together like hydrogen and oxygen in water. Now, the absence of prayer does not dull the Scripture, but it dulls our senses to the Scripture. It does not make the Scripture less of a sword, but it lessens our ability to wield the sword effectively. The idea of prayer as a weapon hit home to me some years ago as I was reading the book of Daniel, and I've actually preached on this passage a couple of times. In Daniel chapter 10, we have Daniel, Daniel humbling himself before God through mourning and fasting, apparently seeking an, uh, a revelation of a divine vision that he has received. Daniel 10. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So three weeks, mourning and fasting and seeking God. And in response to this, an angel comes to him and says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I've come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to help you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. So the angel comes and says this to Daniel. Did you catch it? From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. God is anxious and willing to answer the prayers of his people, but even though the answer was given immediately, its arrival, depending on the outcome of a battle fought in the spiritual realm between the angelic messenger helped by the angel Michael, called here a prince, and the prince of Persia. For 21 days, the battle was fought. For three weeks, Daniel fasted and sought God. So we're left to wonder what might have happened if Daniel had fasted for two weeks or for one week. It seems to me that Daniel's prayer was part of the battle. Bill Wilson, missionary to children in New York New York City says, prayer doesn't give us strength for the battle. Prayer is the battle. Prayer doesn't give us strength for the battle. Prayer is the battle. The Apostle Peter makes this link between prayer and unity when he writes, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above, above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. 
And later, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded because you have an enemy. Be sober-minded so you can pray. And so it is here in Ephesians. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The NIV translation has a new, new sentence beginning in verse 18, and pray in the Spirit, and a new paragraph in verse 19, pray also for me. But in fact, in the original language, this is all one sentence. Taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, and also for me, says Paul, is all one sentence. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. Wielding the word of God in the context of constant alert prayer. Holding the sword of the spirit while praying in the spirit. Now here too we ask, how do we put this weapon to work? In the context of Ephesians 6, essentially by praying together as God's people praying for each other, for all the saints, says verse 18, praising God together for the realities revealed in his word and experienced by us and interceding for the church together. Because I think that what is needed is not so much praying for unity, but our uniting in prayer. Uniting in prayer is more effective than just praying for unity. There are ladies here in the church who meet here every Monday morning and pray for the church and for people in the church. There is a group that meets here every Tuesday evening right here in the sanctuary. Consider joining them. If you are in a life group, consider making prayer for the church an intentional part of every meeting or the focus of a meeting. The elders meet twice a month and will meet once for business and once for prayer. In your families, when you pray together, you pray with your kids when putting them to bed, pray for the church. And here again is where familiarity with the scripture is essential to effective prayer. For it is in the scripture that God's will for the church is revealed. So we can pray confidently in his will for the church. Praying the scripture is powerful. Praying Ephesians then. Pray that we as a church will stand firm against the attacks of the evil one. Pray that being rooted and established in love, we would grow together to know the love of Christ and grow in fullness. Pray that we would have the eyes of our hearts open to know God better. Pray that we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Pray that we would be quick to forgive each other. Pray that we would be increasingly conscious of our being made one in Christ. This is how we pray the scripture, and we know in all of these things that we're praying God's will for the church. That's how we pray with power. But it takes intentionality 
for us to pray and to pray effectively. If you were Satan, if you were Satan and you wanted to destroy the unity of the church, what would you do? I know what I'd do. I would seek to undermine scripture and tell the church that we don't really need it, that the preaching of the word is of secondary importance, that books about the scripture are better than the scripture itself, or unless I feel like reading, I better not, or so the untruth that I can't really understand the scripture but need to be taught by some expert. I try to distract from the practice of prayer, and especially prayer together, too boring, too awkward. It said, if you can't make a Christian backslide, then keep him busy. Well, I'd make it so busy. Even busy doing church things, I'd make it so busy that we don't have time to be in the scripture, don't have time to pray. And all along the way, I so conflict through deceit. That's what I would do if I were Satan. One last thing to consider, and that is that here too, as in every facet of Christian faith and experience, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The sword of the Spirit, the Scripture, is all about Jesus. It's from Jesus. It has to do with Jesus. Concerning the Scriptures, Peter writes that it was the Spirit of Christ in them that was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, and the subsequent glories. Jesus walked his disciples through the whole Old Testament law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, and showed them what was written there about him. And the scriptures testified about him, he said. So the scripture is the book of Jesus. He is the truth. And prayer is through him. We pray in his name. It is in Christ that we approach confidently the throne of God. It is in Christ that we stand in grace. It is in Christ that we are God's children and thus have his ear. The truth is simply that in scripture and prayer, we know Jesus together and stand together against the evil one. It happens no other way. In scripture and prayer is Jesus kept our conscious center and only as Jesus is our conscious center of all that we are and do as a church can we possibly hope to stand firm and repel the evil one's attack. The sword of the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, because it's all about Jesus. That is absolutely crucial, crucial to maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we will remain one body, one congregation, it depends on Scripture and prayer and to engage with them together. Amen. I like to pray.